me this series as much as I have enjoyed preparing it for you, but tonight we're going to actually start the second half of Revelation. So that's kind of how you need to, to look at this, is, is this passage, and you'll be familiar with it because of Handel's Messiah, and um, honey, will you take this for me? The, um, thank you. Because a part of this you'll, you'll recognize and you'll think about it for Christmas, but I've often wondered what must have all entered into the mind of Handel when he wrote that, that great piece, and we sing it every Christmas, and I think I've told you before, I listen to it every year from, from start to finish, and uh, I need to just get it on my um, iTunes so that I don't have to keep changing the CDs to listen to all of it. But I want to ask you, if you would, to stand with me tonight, because this is an important passage of Scripture. It's an important transition as we go into Revelation chapter 12. It's a shorter passage than what I've been normally trying to accomplish, but there's so much here that I need to cover. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices shouting in heaven. The world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. Now, <clears throat> that's an unusual rendering right there. It's the only time in the book that Lord is used of God and not of Jesus. There's one other time in the New Testament when it's used of God. So what you're seeing, you know, it's very Trinitarian, but what you're seeing here is a huge transition. And for us in our Western world, we may not always catch those transitions, but now you're seeing a, a, just a this is like a battleship making a hard right turn or an aircraft carrier making a hard right turn. If you're not hanging on, then you're going to get thrown off. Now, we've had someone, he's not here tonight, but has been coming and he said, you know, until this series, I've never really understood Revelation and I just avoided it. Well, tonight is one of those turns and if you're not careful, it'll throw you because now you're about to enter into some really... Um, the literature that gets so much attention in movies and television and things of that nature. So, very important, this little transition. The world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. Well, the 24 elders sitting on their thrones, we've talked about that already in the series, before God fell with their faces to the ground and worshipped Him, and they said, We give thanks to You, Lord God, the Almighty, the One who is and who always was. And now you notice another transition you need to catch hold of. It's not the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. It's the one who is and the one who was. And right now we're seeing the appearing of our Lord prophetically and the second coming of the Lord. The one who is and who always was, for now you have assumed your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were filled with wrath, but now the time of your wrath has come. It is time to judge the dead and reward your servants, the prophets, as well as your holy people, and all who fear your name from the least to the greatest. It is time to destroy all who have caused destruction on the earth. And then in heaven, the temple of God was opened, and the ark of his covenant could be seen inside the temple, and lightning flashed, and thunder crashed and roared, and there was an earthquake and a terrible hailstorm. Father, we thank you. For the promise of your coming, we can't wait until Jesus returns. Lord, when King Jesus returns, as the song says, he will show his righteous love to every man. Wars and strife will all be passed. There will be peace on earth at last. Lord, I ask you as we begin to study this 
imagery and the violence that follows and all of the things that happened help us to remember, God, you are in control. You are in control. And so now, Lord, we ask you, just give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are set upon being completely and totally passionate followers of Jesus Christ. For it's in your name I pray. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. You may be seated tonight. When, when the apostles preached and they talked about the last days of the apostle Paul, the apostle Peter, they would talk about that we are living in the last days now, and we are. Jesus' birth, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension back to heaven, all of that began what in the Bible is known as the last days. Of course, we have already looked in this series of messages at a time that is to come that is known as the day of the Lord. And we're in that time now, that day of the Lord, prophetically speaking, here in the book of Revelation. Ever since Adam and Eve had disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, when they disobeyed God and they yielded to the temptation of the enemy, they turned their delegated authority over to the devil in this world. That's why the devil could say to Jesus in the temptation story, he could say to him, if you will bow and worship me, I will give you the kingdoms of this world. What we know today is sin was passed on to every one of us because of Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden. And every one of us inherited, if you could think of it like this, a mutant gene. Every one of us inherited something in our personality and in our temperament that we have all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Satan, as we've looked at again in this series and we've talked about before, Satan was a fallen angel. There are many theologians, I confess to you, I don't know, but there are many theologians that believe that he actually led the praise and worship in heaven. What I do know is this fallen created being, this angel who rebelled against God, led a rebellion in heaven, a third of the angels fell. I was asked a question about this on the marriage retreat. How could they do that? God gave them the ability to choose, but God did not give them the right to choose. God gives you the ability to choose and the freedom to choose. That's another whole theological statement to get at. That's the reason there's no hope of repentance for the devil and his demons. So when humanity disobeyed God, they surrendered their delegated authority over to the devil. And ever since that time... The devil has been rallying, marshalling, calling all of the world's power structures together, both seen and unseen, as we'll look at in just a few weeks in the book of Ephesians that we're studying. The devil has been calling all of those to fight aggressively against the Lord and against the Lord's people. The world has always been only one kingdom. The earth belongs to the Lord in all the fullness thereof. Don't ever forget that. The earth belongs to the Lord. However, we're dealing with worldly powers and worldly dominions. In Revelation 9:10, verse 9 and 10 that we looked at last week, where we talked about the martyrdom of the Lord's two witnesses. And if you weren't here, you need to, to be sure and listen to that message because it led right into this. The two witnesses that preached their martyrdom, how they lay in the street for uh, three and a half days until God resurrected them. And the whole deal was they preached the virtue of God. They preached the word of God. The world hated that. The world rejoiced at their falling. It was the reverse of the, of, the, of the Feast of Purim that we know about from the book of Esther that the Jewish people still observe today when they give gifts to one another. It was a reversal of that because now they're giving gifts in exchange for the killing or the murder of these. 
The question is, why does God allow sin and tragedy like this to continue? And I think the answer to that has always been simple. I preached probably four or five messages over the 20 years that I've been your pastor. I preached four or five messages specifically on that one subject. Why does God allow it to continue? It's because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And friends, I think it's been worth it because tonight we're here tonight. This evening you're here. You have a hope of your children committing their lives to Jesus Christ and being born again and raising grandchildren for you. We looked at in chapter 7 and verse 9 of the book of Revelation that before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Friends, that's why God waits is God loves this lost world. And remember when we talk about world, we talk about one, the earth, the planet. We talk about world the kingdoms of this world that have yielded themselves to the power of Satan and they are in rebellion against God. But when you also talk about worlds, you're not just talking about cosmos, you're talking about the people and who inhabit this earth, that God loves them. We are in this world, the kingdoms of this world, but we are not of this world. Amen? So that's the reason that as a pastor, as a Christian, as an evangelical, I feel free at times to criticize the president for some of his moral choices and celebrate some of the things that I think that he does good. Does that make sense? Because we have to discern in this. It's the reason I could choose to celebrate some of the things that I thought President Obama did good, but criticize the things that I thought morally he did wrong. The Christian church and the pulpit can never be held captive by a political party or the kingdoms of this world. We are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And that's what we have to remember. We're ambassadors of Christ. When the United States sends an ambassador, the ambassador is not there to represent the interests of Russia or Belgium or China or Japan. He is there to represent the interest and the voice of the people of the United States. As ambassadors of Christ, our first allegiance is not to the United States, it's not to the state of Michigan or to the township you live in. My first allegiance is not even to Becky and our children. Our first allegiance is always to Christ. And so it's important to keep those things in mind, especially when you read a psalm like this. And it's because Jesus will utterly defeat the devil, overthrow him, and how that what will seem like an hour's time, Christ will dispose all, all the kingdoms. We'll be getting to that. Chapter 19 will tell us how Christ rides out of heaven, followed by his army, people like you and me. Chapter 20 tells us how Satan himself is captured and thrown into the lake of burning fire or burning sulfur to be an accurate translation. The Bible says where he'll be tormented day and night forever. Somebody asked me one time, don't you feel sorry for the devil about that? Of course I don't. Of course I don't. And we need to be careful that we don't get into this mindset like that. It's not that vengeance belongs to me, but the one who is called the horror and the murder and, the, and all of the violence and destruction that has happened in our world. That time was come. The church loves truth. The church loves love. But the church loves justice as well. And justice and truth and love and mercy and justice and mercy, they all met together in the cross of Christ for those that will put their faith in him. And this little passage is going to bring this out. So first of all, number one, the world belongs to God. Now, some of you got notes where they're already filled in. We printed two sets because several of you came to me and said, I like having the notes filled in. I can pay better attention. Some of you like having the notes, the blanks to fill in. So 
Have at it tonight. Take all the notes you want. First of all, there is a sense, that, as I've already said, that everything has always belonged to God. But there is also a sense where God, in His providence and in His love for this world, has allowed people to do what they want. But now there's come a time. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. Last week we talked about that time, that, that it was now, it was here. Now we're reading in verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices shouting in heaven. The world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Does that sound like a prayer that you pray frequently? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Don't you pray that? It's because this is what we want. Heaven is actually celebrating. Those in heaven are worshiping. They're celebrating the Lord. Last week I told you John was on the earth. That in that vision, he was back upon the earth. He was watching what was happening with the two witnesses in the city that was called Egypt and Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, we talked about that. Now he's back in heaven. He's even going to get a glimpse inside the temple in heaven. We'll talk about that in a minute. But God is saying right now that there is a sense that the world's kingdoms, not the planet that he already owns and is in charge of, but the world's kingdoms, they had a start, they have an end that God has already set and planned, and God will say there will come a time when enough is enough, and those kingdoms will come to an end. Daniel prophesied about this in chapter 2, verse 44. During the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand before, uh, stand forever. In Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 9, we looked at, and the Lord will be king over all the earth, and on that day there will be one Lord, and his name alone will be worshiped. You ought to underline that over all the earth. There will come a time where everyone who lives on this planet after all of these prophetic events and revelation are complete, where only the Lord will be worshiped. And that new heaven and new earth is going to be a wonderful place to be a part of. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Imagine that. That's when those things that we sing about, there will be no more death there. There will be no more crying there, no more pain there. This first thing I want you to see under this point is that the announcement is made, Christ will return. This is when... You know, Jesus said, no man knows the hour, no man knows the time, only the Father knows. We don't have a time, we don't have an hour given, and when people try to give you that, Revelation never gives you that time or the hour, it just gives you that assurance that it's going to happen. Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. Just giving you a hint of everything that's going to follow this chapter is leading up to that moment. Second thing I want you to see there is not only that the Lord is returning, but let's worship the Lord. That's what they're doing in heaven. And all along, I've told you, you get a picture in Revelation. It's not so much a picture of all the beasts. All those things are symbolic. It's not so much the numbers. All those things are symbolic. We've been looking at that. But you get a picture of what is really going on in heaven. God is in control, and God is being worshipped. And we are most like heaven when we are living lives of worship, and then when we gather in this place to worship His name together and sing songs of praise together. So we are most like heaven when Becky and I order our marriage and our home in a way that God has said to do. We'll be looking at that in this series on Ephesians on Sunday morning. We are most like heaven when we're raising our children the way God tells us to. We're most like, heaven, we're most like what's going on in heaven when we're loving and kind towards others. We're helpful to the poor. We're, we're healing towards the sick. We're feeding the hungry. When we're forgiving those who harm us, we're most like heaven. But then we celebrate like heaven when we join together to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. 
truth. The 24 elders sitting on their thrones before God fell with their faces to the ground and worshiped him. And they said, we give thanks to you, Lord God, the Almighty, the one who is and who always was, for now you have assumed your great power and have begun to reign. You say, I thought he always, yes, he had. But now the kingdoms of this world have been overthrown. What the church has been praying for, that Jesus taught us to pray for, that is taking place. It's why in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, and you'll see why this, is, this verse is so important. I didn't put it in your outline. But if, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8, where Paul, by the way, is writing to Timothy, the pastor of the church of the Ephesians. Paul writes to him and says, I would that men everywhere would lift up holy hands without anger and without wrath. When we are living angry lives and wrathful lives, we are living like the world. When we are living peaceful lives and loving lives, we are living like Christ. And so that's the reason he says, I want you, your prayers aren't, your prayers aren't going anywhere. It, you know, they're not going to heaven when you allow your life to be controlled by wrath and anger. And why can we pray that way? Why can I pray without wrath? Why can I pray without anger? Because I know that vengeance belongs to the Lord. I know that God is in control. God has no competitors. God has no competitors. There is no competition. The Lord is not threatened in any way. As a matter of fact, you may not know this, but I just thought, gosh, this is a great time to bring this out. Um, it's just almost providential. What's the next holiday coming up on the calendar? Halloween. What follows Halloween? All Saints Day. The reason that Halloween and All Saints Day are together is because Halloween was a reminder to the church. I know there was a pagan festival, but the church decided to recognize Halloween as that night before All Saints Day when all that the devil had sought to do in life, all that the devil, the death the horror, the ghoulishness, the barbarianism, that all of that would come to an end. And as the pagans celebrated that night, they chose the next day to show All Saints Day that God was in control and God would bring an end to all suffering, pain, and death. So All Saints Day is not just a day to remember the dead. That's all Saints Day is all about remembering the Lord whom we serve. And so when I drive through my subdivision and I drive through my neighborhood and I see all of this ghoulish, bloody, galley stuff ring hanging around, I just remind myself, you know, that may be the nighttime. That may be when the devil thought he had won the night that Christ was crucified. But honey, you hang on. Resurrection day is coming. Okay? And that's the point that's being made right here, I think. The third thing is that God will right all the wrongs of all times. Wow. God will right all the wrongs of all time. It's the reason I don't want to go to my grave with any unconfessed sin. It's the reason I don't want to go to my grave with anything that I've hurt someone else and I've not sought their forgiveness and I've not sought to have things right. It's the reason that you want to live carefully before the Lord because God is going to right all the wrongs of all times. That that's under the blood of Jesus is forgiven and forgotten. Can you say praise the Lord? I mean, what's been forgiven, God forgets. People don't forget. I mean, we may try as hard as we want to, and it's not that God is forgetful, it's just that God chooses not to remember. And that's the lesson on forgiveness that we have to remember, that we choose not to remember. Well, look at this next verse. The nations were filled with wrath. In other words, the nations are angry with one another. The nations are angry at each other. And we live in a world where there's a lot of anger going on right now. There's anger throughout Europe, 
There's anger at the immigrants coming into Europe. There's anger at the immigrants in Europe because of how they're being treated. There's anger in the United States. I've never seen our country this angry. I've never seen our country like this in my lifetime. I have never witnessed anything like we've just witnessed. There's anger in our neighbors. There's anger between, uh, with Canada. There's anger with Mexico. There is anger in the Orient and China and Korea. Friends, even the islands are angry tonight. The, the islands that uh, Scott and, and Ruth Thompson are going to, 6,000 islands that make up Indonesia, many of those islands without Christ, many of them hotbeds for terrorism. There is anger tonight in Afghanistan, or I guess it's this morning in Afghanistan, where people are going to vote. Yesterday, there were churches that were bombed. Yesterday, there were people that were attacked. The world has always been angry. The world is all, it's not anything new. We see it flare up and flare down, flare up and flare down. But what you're seeing here is a description of history. The nations were filled with wrath, but notice this, but now the time of your wrath. Whose wrath? God's wrath has come. Now, God's wrath there is not the Greek word thumanas. Thumanas is the word where you get angry real quick, and then it kind of died. Have you ever lost your temper and then just a few minutes later you cool down? Don't look so pious. Half of you are like, no, I've never done that. Remember, all sins have got to be confessed and forsaken. Liars go to hell. So let's get right here. That's thumanos. This word is orge. It's a Greek word. It's, it means the settled decision and will of God. God is not out of control. This is not an angry God spitting nails at the earth. This is where God, in His providence, said there will come a time, and now the orge of God is being revealed. It is time to destroy all who have caused destruction on the earth. What are they angry at? Well, they're angry at God's truths. They're angry at the fact that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. They're angry that somehow or another that Christians believe that the only way to heaven is through Christ. They're angry at us tonight because of the virtues, and they're angry at God personally. In St. Petersburg, there is a beautiful, beautiful Swedish Lutheran church. The pastor of that Lutheran church was martyred by the Soviets. It was a church that had been there and was older than the nation of Russia itself. That's how long they had been there. It was a church that fed the hungry, still an evangelical Lutheran church today. But they took the church properties, martyred the pastor, the Soviets martyred the pastor. The church had to go underground and meet in small groups. They turned the church into a dormitory. Later they turned it into a museum for natural sciences. And finally, a court decision has returned that church back to its rightful owners, and these believers are coming out of the ground, are coming out of the small groups where they've been meeting at, and they're able to worship in their church again. You say, why did that happen? Why, was why do people like Stalin, why do people like Communist China try to control the church? And, you know, the things that I get monthly and sometimes weekly because of the missionaries we have living in China and how careful they have to be, the things that I get monthly because of those that are living and serving in undisclosed countries, serving in Christ, their lives are in danger. Why did Turkey throw a pastor into prison 
and keep him there. Why did they hold him? Was it, this was long before Donald Trump, this was long before they decided to use him as a bargaining chip, but why did they put him in that prison? It's for the simple reason that there are people that are angry at God and angry at his word and angry at the, at the fact that Jesus is Lord. In the Bible, in Psalms chapter 2, this is the fulfillment of what you read in Psalms chapter 2, and you've read it many times. Why are their nations so angry? Why do they waste their time with futile plans? The kings of the earth prepare for battle, and the rulers plot together against the Lord and against his, whole, and his anointed one. When I read that and I think about how that, I, when I read uh, current news reports of how today that Vlad wants to bring the Soviet Union back, when I read how that he wants to bring, and they're killing journalists and killing people that disagree with him, when I read all of these things, I sit around and wonder, do you not understand? Do not these, these people understand who kill Christians and kill pastors, a pastor that my son knew in Iraq, and while he was stationed there, he's now been martyred and killed for his faith in Christ. Don't they realize that all they do is they usher us into the very presence of Jesus Christ where we will rule and reign with him forever? Are they so blinded themselves by sin that somehow or another they think in their brief lives, your brief life and my brief life, that somehow or another that when they die and go to the grave, they won't walk the same place that kings and emperors that have walked before them and their names will be forgotten and their names will be a part of history and somebody may loot their grave if Jesus tarries another 500 or 1,000 years. Friends, understand this. All of us who are going to stand before the Lord are going to find security only if we have submitted to Jesus Christ. And that's what he's leading up here to this. That's what he's leading up to in this little short passage of Scripture. The only safe place to be is in Christ. Say that with me. In Christ. Say it again. In Christ. That's the reason Paul uses that phrase so many times. In Christ. My life is hidden with God in Christ. Christ. And then verse 4 and 5 of Psalms 2, but the one who rules in heaven laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. And then in anger, the same Hebrew word translated into Greek, or J, he rebukes them, terrifying them with his, with his fierce fury. There's something else you need to see here when Christ returns. This is like a paracope of all that we're going to see in the rest of the book of Revelation. God will reward the least to the greatest. God will reward the least to the greatest. That wording is deliberate because it comes right out of the Bible. Typically, you read from the greatest to the least. That wording comes right out of the Bible and it's to remind you of something. Those who are least in the world's eyes are great in God's eyes. Those members that you don't give as much honor to that work behind the scenes that you and I probably don't recognize like we should, God says he sees their labor and he's going to reward them. Several things to take out of this. Number one, the time has come to judge the dead. The time has come. Hebrews 9.27 says, just as each person is destined to die once and after that comes the judgment. Now later on in this series, I will show you why I believe Revelation teaches there will be a resurrection of the righteous and then after the resurrection of the righteous, 
there will be a, t a time that we know is a millennial period, and then God will raise the wicked dead. We'll talk about that later, but there are two resurrections, the resurrection of the righteous, and then after the millennium, there will be the resurrection of those that have rejected Christ. But now we've got a pericope. We're getting a glimpse of what's coming. The time has come for rewarding God's people. It is time to judge the dead and reward your servants, the prophets, as well as your holy people and all who fear your name or reverence your name. That's a it's, that's what that means there, to reverence your name or fear your name from the least to the greatest. All of those who don't accept God's judgment against sin in Christ and choose to reject His amazing grace, those people are going to be rewarded or they're going to be judged according to their rejection of Christ. The believers will be judged as well. Our works will be judged. Our fruit will be judged. It's the reason that we live with reverence for the Lord. I love my daddy. But this morning... While I was getting ready early this morning, I was thinking about Daddy, and I was thinking about this message, and I thought, man, when I did what Daddy wanted me to do and told me to do, I was never afraid of Daddy. Matter of fact, Daddy loved to reward. Daddy loved to bless. Daddy loved to congratulate. Daddy loved, but if you violated Daddy's word, whew, that's another story. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? It's the fear of a child. Now, listen to this, and, and, and this is the best way I know how to, and I've, you know, sometimes your most inspirational time comes in the shower. It's the fear of a child that when you meet a big dog or you meet a big bully, it makes you run to the father. It's the fear of a child that when you've done wrong, that makes you want to run from the father. And that's what I'm seeing right here for the believers when we walk with Christ, there is this bold confidence that rises up in us that when we face something bigger than we are, we run to the Father. There's this bold confidence in us that as we live in fellowship with the Father day by day, we worship Him. We fall on our faces. We lift up our hands without wrath and without anger. We tell people every day, Jesus says, we love to talk about Jesus because when we're in fellowship with the Father, we just naturally love to live lives of worship. That's the reason our mission statement says, passionate followers of Christ. Worship is not just what we do here at this church. This is not just a worship band or or a worship service. Worship is how we live our lives. It's why we rest one day a week. God didn't need to rest. God has no need of rest, but God rested from his work so that you and I would have an example that he will take care of business if we will serve him six days a week fully with all of our hearts. On the seventh day, we can rest and enjoy the fellowship of our Father. Can we give him a hand of praise for that tonight? It's powerful. Now, when it comes to the judgment of believers, here's something I think that's just really important. If the work is burned up, the builder will suffer. He's talking about Christians. If the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss, but the builder will be saved like someone barely escaping through a wall of flames. What's he saying there? He said, my works and your works are going to be judged. The works that we do are going to be judged. And you might think, well, how can I be happy in heaven how can I be happy in heaven if my works are burned up? I mean, really, how can I be happy if we get to heaven and, Bob, you've got more works than I got? And, Bob, how are you and I going to be happy if we get to heaven and Carrie and Becky have got more works than you and I have got put together? And, you know, that's really, really possible, Bob, <laughs> considering the two women we're married to. And how would these wives of ours be happy if we got to heaven and all of a sudden found out Janine had more 
reward and more works than they did. I mean, all of hers was gold, silver. Normally, you wouldn't be very happy if you got to heaven and all of your stuff was burned up, wood, hay, and stubble, and Rick got all the gold, silver, and precious stones. You would be singing, just build my mansion next door to Rick. The emphasis, though, is not on that. Put the Scripture back up there, if you would, please, from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15. The emphasis is on that word, and I put it in bold in your outline, saved. That's what's going to bring all and joy to all of our hearts. It's not that Paul is trying to tell you to earn something. It's not that Paul is trying to tell you work for a bigger crown. The emphasis is on being saved. However, Paul is recognizing what the book of Deuteronomy points out. I didn't put it in your outline. I, no, I did put it in your outline. I did, told him not to put it on the screen. But I want you later tonight to read Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1 through 14. It's in your outline. And the reason I want you to read that is the first half of Deuteronomy tells you how you're going to be blessed if you serve the Lord. <laughs> your children, your crops will be blessed. Your town, your fields will be blessed. The offspring of your herds and flocks will be blessed. Your fruit baskets and breadboards will be blessed. The Lord will conquer it. He says, when you obey me and you live in fellowship with me, this is the kind of life. But he tells his people in the second half of Deuteronomy that if you don't, this is how things are going to go for you. This is not about salvation. This is about the kind of life you get to enjoy now. Now, I have to tell you this because years and years and years ago, when I was taking Hebrew, I... Um, my Hebrew professor was a, had been incarcerated in a German Nazi camp, had been tortured for his faith. Wonderful, wonderful man. But he told me, he says, just as a Christian and as a young pastor, you need to study the African-American church as well. And one of the things I found out in studying the African-American church, this passage of Scripture really inspired the slaves and those people in America later in life after the Civil War when they were released and freed. Because, for instance, in the AME church, which began as a slave church, even slaves could become a deacon. Even slaves could become a bishop in the church. And those people whose bodies were owned by others and made to work in cotton fields and tobacco fields, when they were allowed to worship, they were recognized as a deacon, as a pastor, as a bishop in their AME churches. And they were learning and understanding though somebody else owned them physically and worked them horrendously in fields under a hot southern sun, they knew God was in control and that you might own their body, but you could never own their soul. And this has provided so much comfort for people down through the ages living in difficult places and difficult times. Times might be rough now, but no man owns my soul. No man owns my spirit. I am a child of God, whether you recognize it or not. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that? I think it's powerful. So the life lesson I want you to see here is God shows no favoritism, and I gave you a verse for that from Acts 10.34. Now I can wrap this up kind of quickly this evening, and um, honey, if you'll come on up to the piano. There's another 
passage here in verse 18 that I want you to look at. This planet we live on, earth, it's a temple where we live under God's rule and grace. This planet we live on is a temple. And that's how you have to think of the earth. God created the earth to be your home. God created the earth to come and dwell with us and dwell among us. God has some harsh things to say to people here who are destroying the earth. It's time to destroy all who have caused destruction on the earth. We have, from the very first chapter of Genesis, and remember I told you, if you want to understand Revelation, you've got to understand Genesis. We have a divine mandate. We are stewards of this earth. The earth doesn't belong to us. It doesn't belong to the devil. It belongs to God. God made us stewards of it. It's what we do with the earth that matters. It's how we use the earth. God said, let's make man in our image to be like us. They will rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock and all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. We're living in a time of some big ecological changes. We're living in a time and of some people who have got this all wrong. In this ecological change that we're living in, this verse speaks to me. It's a reminder that I'm called to steward and use this earth productively but I'm called to steward this earth and protect this earth as a garden keeper. Does that make sense to you? We're being most like God when we take good care of our lawns, when we take good care of our highways, when we take good care of our rivers and our lakes. Man is creating the image, let me rephrase that, human beings are creating the image of God. And being created in the image of God means that we're capable of much more. We don't have to settle for the destruction of the earth. I grew up in school seeing all the horrible pictures of Lake Erie. I remember when it caught on fire. And I drove out to Lake Erie just the other day just to think about this and pray over this passage of Scripture. And there... I saw wildlife back in abundance when I remember there was not supposed to be any wildlife. When I Googled, an endangered species have come back to, 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 to thrive in the Great Lakes series. People swim in the Great Lakes now. People eat the fish in the Great Lakes. And what a horrible thing it was to come home this summer and then find out that some company with all the work that has been done of people to steward the Great Lakes, somebody was dumping chemicals in the river that was poisoning the fish and poisoning the waterways again. We have a right as citizens to speak out about that because we are stewards of the earth. But then we have to be careful because there are some people who do not believe that we are stewards of the earth. They believe that the earth itself is Lord. 
There are people who worship the planet. There are people who refer to Mother Earth. And friends, they're not just those weird people you see dancing around like they're in a pagan festival somewhere. These are people that are in universities. These are people in politics. Go all the way back. James Watt was a member of an Assemblies of God church in Colorado that Becky and I are both very familiar with. When he was Secretary of the Interior, and he was drilled by an activist senator from Oregon. And he said, asking me, he says, Mr. Watt, will your belief that Jesus Christ is coming back again, will it affect how you take care of the interior? Well, that's like asking, am I going to beat up my wife tonight? I mean, that's a leading question. It's like trying to throw somebody a curveball. James Watt writes in his book, you can still find it at abooks.com. He writes in his book how he had made a decision that he would not try to defend his faith in politics. He tried to keep his faith in politics separate. And so he refused to answer the question. And what that did, and as much as I respect and liked Mr. Watt, what that did is it gave the enemy's cause to say that Christians don't care about the earth. And you may not know this, there are all kinds of articles written that you and I don't care about the earth because Jesus is coming again. We care about this planet because this planet is the temple that God created for us to live in and dwell among us. And the first command we were given were to be good stewards of it. It's why whenever we read something like Kyoto or the Paris Treaty, we need to read that. We don't just need to trust the talking heads on CNN and, and uh, Fox News and CBS News to tell us what to think. We need to read that. And there are good summaries, if you, you can't read all that, that come from places like Creation Care and from very good Christian organizations like Christianity Today, for instance. Because you have to ask yourself, will those policies work? We do know. I mean, I, I, not that I'm a scientist, but I've just read and studied now for several years these things, and I now have a whole shelf of books just on this subject. We do know there are 1,500-year cycles that, the, that we go through of warming and cooling. We do know that the warming of the earth happens before the carbon dioxide increases in the atmosphere. We know that. It's not that carbon dioxide increases the warmth of the planet. It's that the solar flares cause the sun to warm the planet, and the planet gets warmer. And therefore, when things get warmer, things grow bigger and grow better. And so then the carbon dioxide, but is that all bad? Trees breathe that carbon dioxide. They store a lot of it. Is it all bad? If you look at the globe, most of the landmass where people live is north of the equator. If we could feed more people, that would be a good thing, wouldn't it? Oh, but we might lose New York City and New Orleans and Miami. Well, that might not be such a bad thing. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> I'm teasing, I'm teasing. You know, but you can see these cycles. Study the history of Greenland. So you can't just look at this and go, oh, every company that's a chemical company or an oil company or a timber company or a paper company is a bad company. 
Because if you do what Kyoto in Paris says, you're going to keep the third world, you're going to make it poorer and more unhealthy than what it is already. I've walked there. I've sat in their huts where they use dung, where they take all of the draft animals, the cows and the horses, and they press it together with their hands and put it on sticks. It's unhealthy. Children are sick. They produce more carbon dioxide because they burn all the trees. I've seen total landscapes denuded. But if we don't... Now i got to settle down because I get really agitated about this. Because we don't think and do our own research, we allow somebody from Fox or CNN to tell us what to think. We need to read ourselves. You say, well, I'm too busy to read. No, you're not. Get a good summary and from somewhere trusted, and I can point you to places. We've got good people here in the church who know more about this than I do. And then finally, tonight, and I've got to close. I gave you several verses to look at there later. There's no sin. There's a peculiar passage here. There's no sin actually there's no barrier between the redeemed and God. He is always with us. I, I've got to close, so let me just address this quickly. Then in heaven, the temple of God was opened, and the ark of his covenant could be seen inside the temple, and lightning flashed, and thunder crashed and roared, and there was an earthquake and a terrible hailstorm. The fireworks always follow when you see the glory of God. Amen? Now, last week I told you, I was real clear about this, the temple may be rebuilt, in the last days in Jerusalem. But the church should not be a part of helping rebuild that temple. The sacrifice has been made in Christ already, okay? We don't need to see the sacrifice of bulls and blood and goats and things like that. But now you're going to see, and this is where, again, remember I said you're taking a hard right, coming back to the beginning. Because when we get to the end of the book of Revelation, you're going to see where the Bible says, there is no temple for the Lord is the light. The Lord is the temple. And you go, what gifts? Why is there an ark here and a temple here? And at the end of the book, there is. This is symbolic. The ark represented, the ark represented the promises of God and the presence of God. The symbolic of the promises of God, and you go ahead and put the other one up as well, and the presence of God. The mercy seat, the promises of God. The ark, the very presence of God. Do you remember I told you last year in October when we were in Senator, Becky and I were in Senator Inhofe's office and spent some time with him, and he asked me about a book about the ark, and he was all excited about it. And, and it's a very long book by a man by the name of Graham Hancock, and he says, do you believe it still exists? And I said, no, I don't believe it exists anymore. I believe that when, when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, they probably melted that thing down. Now, there are some traditions. I'll be honest with you. I've been in Ethiopia. The Ethiopians say they've got the ark. They'll show you the building, but they'll never show you the ark. Okay? By the way, I've got a ton of gold in my office. You can't see it, but I've got a ton of gold in my office. I mean, you've been very generous. i got piles of gold in my You can't see it, but it's there. Okay? There's another saying that that uh, the Essenes took and hid it in a cave and that it's going to be brought back out. The Jewish people look for that ark constantly. Okay? The Bible says in the book of Jeremiah that it was no more. It was destroyed. The Babylonians probably melted it down for gold. 
the ark is symbolic of the promises and the presence of God. You're making a hard right turn here. Things are about to change. History is changing. The end of time is upon us. Jesus Christ has returned. There is no need for the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus is our Ark. Remember what I said about being in Christ? When you were in the Ark, you were safe from the flood. When Jesus was in the Ark of Mary's womb, He was being birthed and brought into this world. When you see the word Ark, you're always talking about a place of promise and presence. Jesus was the promise of God, the Redeemer of all the earth, and the Ark is fulfilled in Christ. Can we give him a hand of praise for that tonight? We are in Christ. He is the ark of safety. Father, in the name of Jesus, we love you so much. I pray that we will worship you and celebrate you. And as we begin now to look at the beast and the false prophet, the Lord, the, all of these things that seem to get people so agitated, I pray, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And always remember, whatever's happening in the news or in the world, God, you are in control. Come soon, Lord Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen. If you've got any questions, I'll be glad to try and answer them tonight. I'll stick around for a little while, okay?